Vin studies have their limits, and you have to know these limits to properly apply them to your case. If you don't know the limits, it can lead to make it or break it situations for litigation. Welcome to the Brattle Exchange, where we explore critical economic, financial, and accounting topics with Brattle experts and influential voices from industry and academia. It's hosted by the Brattle Group, a global consulting firm that tackles complex economic, financial, and regulatory questions for corporations, law firms, and governments around the world. I am Dr. Tobin Lutman, president of the Brattle Group, and I testify and consult on matters related to securities and finance, often with respect to securities fraud class actions. I'm excited to sit down with Dr. Drew Roper, co-leader of the securities class action practice on our inaugural podcast to discuss the role of event studies in assessing price impact in securities fraud litigation in a post-Halliburton II world. Since this is a complex topic, uh, we will present it over two episodes. In this first episode, we will roll back the clock to 2014-2015 to talk about the Halliburton II decision and discuss its impact on class certification within securities fraud class actions. We'll take a look at post-Halliburton II outcomes to learn how the court is thinking about price impact today. In the second episode, we will look more closely at the inquiry asked on the Halliburton. We discuss price impact and the role of investor sentiment in third-party disclosures. It's been 10 years since Halliburton, and the courts have become more accustomed to looking at price impact. Things are getting more nuanced, and we will explore some of these cutting-edge issues. Our conversations draw from our published research, which we have linked in the show notes. Let's get started. Uh, thanks, Torben. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Ten years ago, or roughly ten years ago, when Halliburton II was decided, I was at Stanford teaching law in a course of law school at the time. Essentially, I was engaged in discussions day-to-day -day with these law students, thinking about how, in the law, we could assess whether disclosure changed the price. And in that question, the law typically would look to an analysis called an event study. And so, in particular, I was looking and discussing with students about how it is you could use event studies to assess questions related to price changes in securities fraud class action. And these questions arose all the time. It arises in materiality. It arises in market efficiency. It arises in loss causation. E each of these inquiries has in some way something to deal with, did a disclosure cause a price to change? In all these inquiries, when I was talking to students, I'd bring them back to what the event study's purpose was, what it could do and what it couldn't do. Effectively reminding students that this panacea looked to by the court had its own limitations. On its face though, Halliburton II seemed like a game changer. Legally what Halliburton II did is it said defendants could challenge the presumption that the reliance was actually there as suggested under BASIC. Halliburton said that defendants could examine price impact at class certification stage. The Supreme Court seemed to be inviting defense to bring a star player off the bench, the star player being the question about price impact. So what's going on here? Well, what was happening was, if you go back to 1988, a history lesson, we go back to Basic v. Levinson. And in that ruling, the Supreme Court opened the door for class certification in security fraud cases. It opened the door by loosening the requiremental reliance. Instead of plaintiffs having to prove that each and every plaintiff saw a fraudulent statement, plaintiffs could rely on the fraud on the market theory. Under BASIC, BASIC described the fraud on the market theory as follows. The fraud on the market premise 
is that the is the price of a security traded in an efficient market will reflect all publicly available information about a company. Accordingly, a buyer of security may be presumed to have relied on that information in purchasing a security. What Basic basically said to economists was, if you tell a lie in an efficient market, we can presume that lie gets incorporated into the price because in an efficient market, all information gets incorporated into the price. That interpretation was the way class certification proceeded for 30 years. Essentially, what class certification became in security fraud cases was a test of market efficiency. If you could demonstrate the cause and effect relationship through camera factor number five, cause and effect between information and a change in price, then the court would be willing to entertain the idea that the market's efficient. Plaintiffs provided that evidence using an event study. The court made the determination the market was efficient and presumed that the fraud-related information was actually impacting the price in that certification. Halliburton opened that door up. Can we challenge price impact? Before challenges to uh, class certification and securities fraud weren't very successful. Joe Grunfest at Stanford Law did some research coming into Halliburton. And in the 10 years prior to Halliburton, in the 3,050 cases of securities fraud lawsuits that were class actions, he found only five instances where defendants were successful in challenging class certification. Interestingly, none of those challenges assessed the efficiency of the market. None of those challenges assessed price impact on the market. All of those challenges related to the reliance inherent in the named plaintiff. Essentially, the argument was the named plaintiff is not an adequate representation because they themselves did not rely on the integrity of the market. So for 10 years before Halliburton, class certification seemed to be perfunctory in class actions. Halliburton II was a game changer. At the end of the day, what Halliburton II said is, even if plaintiffs provide evidence consistent with market efficiency, the court should let the defendants try and rebut the assumption that the fraudulent information in the first place impacted the price. So on its face, Halliburton seemed at the time to be a game changer. Court was inviting the star player in the second quarter to come in and play in the game. The game was going to be, let's look at price impact at certification. So Torben, it's uh, been almost 10 years now since Halliburton. 10 years before, no challenges of price impact. Basically, no challenges that were where class certification was denied, only five instances. In the last 10 years since Halliburton, there's been thousands of cases come through the system. Your paper looks at those cases and asks the question, are defendants now using price impact to challenge class certification? So what did you find? Well, Drew, I don't know if there's been thousands of cases in the last 10 years, but certainly hundreds of cases. The short answer is yes, we did find that defendants have been more successful based on the survey we did. In our article, we looked closely at 138 court opinions uh, since Halborn came out, um, and these opinions were the justice specifically cited to the case. We found that in 40% of them, close to 40%, basically 59 out of the 138, defendants did not challenge the presumption of price impact. Well, what's interesting is in the, the remaining 60%, close to 60%, uh, 79 cases, defendants did attempt to show uh, that the alleged public material misrepresentations did not have a price impact. In effect, they tried to show in those cases that there was no price impact. But let's talk about these 79 cases. Uh, out of these 79 cases, 58, or about 75%, defendants attempted to challenge the presumption of price impact, but they did not include an event study. They did not conduct their own event study when they made that challenge. 
And, and that led to some decisions that came out, for example, in the Synod Juros securities litigation, the court simply noted that defendant's failure to supplement the expert report with an event study uh, showing the absence of a price impact is on its own a basis to reject defendant's argument. So the remaining 21 cases out of the 79, uh, so about 25% of the, the instances, defendants attempted to rebut the presumption of price impact by using their own event study, presenting their own event study. Here, defendants seem to address the court's concern uh, by conducting their own event study. And when they did so, uh, defendants provided, when they provided their own event study, the arguments appear to have been more effective. So when you look at these 21 instances, defendants were successful in five of the 21. So about 25% of the time, defendants have been successful at challenging the presumption, again, when they perform their own event study. But overall, when we look at our survey uh, for the, the 10 years since Halliburton, uh, it's five out of 138. So in our sample, uh, our survey, 3.6% of the time, defendants were able to rebut the presumption of, of price impact and therefore have their, their class not certified. So I think it's safe to say that overall, challenging the presumption of reliance in basic following Halliburton 2 has been successful. But I think one of the things we have learned by looking at our survey is you have to conduct your own events. That's an interesting finding. The court is is relying on the event study in this case as kind of a divining rod to segregate the issue of price impact. It's not surprising. The, the court's been doing that uh, with market efficiency. Uh, we in, in the industry use it for materiality and, and loss causation. But the 25% of the time that defendants uh, are using our event study, that's a promising number, at least, that the court is entertaining and looking at the presumption in earnest. I agree, Drew. And I noticed this is a big part of your paper as well. You were mentioning that at the time that Halliburton 2 came out, that you were interested in knowing how the court would interpret event study evidence in increase related to price impact. Let's discuss two themes that come out of the combined research. First, courts have repeatedly said lack of statistical significance is not evidence of lack of price impact. So theme one I would like to address today, Drew, is what makes lack of significance so tricky when assessing price impact using an event study? And second, courts have repeatedly said that confounding news can be a challenge when assessing price impact. What's going on with lack of significance and confounding information? Why are the court looking at these issues, Drew? Yeah, well, lack of statistical significance and confounding information, those are two of the uh, challenges that courts have dealt with with event studies for a long time. And courts have been using event studies for a long time as well. We know in economics that when these event studies are properly conducted and interpreted, that they can provide very powerful economic evidence in securities fraud class actions. But as I taught at Stanford and as I tell clients, event studies have their limits. And you have to know these limits to properly apply them to your case. If you don't know the limits, it can lead to make it or break it situations for the litigation. Courts are familiar with these event studies. They've been using them for a while, right? They've been using them to assess materiality, loss causation. So to, to understand the limits, we can actually look at those two inquiries first. We'll look at the inquiry of loss causation and ask what's going on there. And then we'll look at the inquiry on materiality. Out of that inquiry, we're going to see lack of statistical significance. So let's talk about statistical significance. Let's begin with Dura. Dura was a seminal opinion from the Supreme Court that said recoverable damages and securities fraud class actions were limited to the losses caused by the fraud. And the question that Dura faced and posed for litigants was, prices change all the time for a bunch of different reasons. And so when we see a price decline with a corrective disclosure, the question is, did the price decline because of the alleged truth? Or maybe it declined because of changes in the market or changes in the industry. And Dura's own words 
Dura said, when the purchaser subsequently resells such shares, even at a lower price, that lower price may reflect not the earlier misrepresentation, but changed economic circumstances, changed investor expectations, or new industry-specific or firm facts or conditions, which taken separately or together account for some or all that lower price. Dura basically said to plaintiffs, to prove loss causation, you have to prove that the price impact, price fall, was caused by the fraud. Now, event studies are really good for this, right? Because what an event study essentially does is it's a filter. It's a statistical tool that says, if you tell me some factors that you think are moving the stock price, I'll remove those factors from the changes that you observe, leaving you with what's left over. What Dura says is, I want you to investigate a couple of factors. I want you to look at whether or not the stock price changed because of a changed economic circumstances or changed industry circumstances. Did the market move? Did the industry move? So in the context of loss causation, the event study is delivering right on the question, the legal question at hand. It's removing from the price change the changes associated with industry moves or market, leaving the unexplained portion of the price. That unexplained portion then is caused by some change in the total mix of information that was released on that day. Whether it's the fraud-related information or not, we still have to look at. But effectively, what the event study methodology does is it looks at that residual portion and it asks a statistical question. It looks at that residual unexplained portion and it says, given the day-to-day changes that occur in the stock price all the time, is that unexplained portion really, really large relative to those normal daily changes. So the event study turns the question of cause and effect into a threshold question. If the event study finds that the residual is large enough, then the economist has a reliable basis to conclude that there was some information that caused the price to change. But that's where the limits of the event study stop. The event study doesn't tell us what information actually caused the price to change. Thanks, Drew. That was a good explanation you gave. Many cases have won or lost at summary judgment based on the reliability of the event study and the existence of statistically significant stock price declines. But what about materiality, Drew? Does statistically significance play a role when you assess materiality in, in securities fraud cases? That is an interesting question. And even though event studies are used to assess material, materiality all the time, they may not be always able to detect materiality in the first place. I'll give you an example. So materiality is determined by TSC, TSC Industries. In TSC Industries, the Supreme Court determined that a fact is material if there is, and I'll quote here, a substantial likelihood that the disclosure of the omitted fact would have been viewed by the reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information. So what TSC instructs litigants to examine is whether there is a change in the total mix of information which a reasonable investor would view as being a significant alteration. Now, litigants and economists look at that word significant, and it looks like it's associated with statistical significance. So we go to the event study. We know that the event study is able to detect when there is a threshold large change in the stock price. And finance theory predicts that when there is a large change in the stock price, what's going on is there must have been a change in the information. It's information changes which cause investors to trade, which causes stock prices to change. So if we put these statements in reverse order, what do we see? 
What we see in materiality is if we're using an event study, the method of proof that we're assuming is as follows. In the event study, we're saying, if I see the price move enough, then that must have been a significant change in the total mix of information from a statistical sense. However, we can see where that method of proof can sometimes lead you astray. And that's example three in my article. So what's going on in example three? Well, example three is an earnings announcement alleged fraud. In example three, what we're going to find out is that the price impact can actually get lost in the noise. In this example, a company falsely issues an earnings report of a dollar and 11 cents a share when the market was only expecting a dollar and 10 cents. So at the time of that earnings announcement, the company has introduced a one penny lie into the marketplace. At the time of that earnings announcement, there is a change from a $1.10 expectation to a potential realization of a $1.11. That's a change in the information. When we apply the event study, however, in this case, we find out that the change in information resulted in a stock price change that was too small for the event study to determine it's statistically significant. It was below the threshold. Now, the question is, is does that mean that that change in stock price that is too small, which is associated with a known change in information, is that in fact immaterial as a matter of law under TSC? Maybe some investor really cared about $1.11 versus $1.10 for their own particular purposes. So coming out of Halliburton, I recognized that there were going to be instances where the court was going to have to evaluate decisions where the event study, because of the threshold effect, may not find a price impact. The price impact itself is hidden within the noise, so to speak. The question would be, how would the courts look to those instances? So, Torben, it's been roughly 10 years now since Halliburton. It's been 10 years that the court has had the opportunity to grapple with what are they going to do when they see an event study that shows lack of statistical significance and defendants are trying to argue that that event study supports a finding of no price impact. We've seen 10 years of data. What is the court saying about lack of statistical significance at class certification? Thanks, Drew. Yeah, it's been already 10 years, so we have quite a bit of data to look at. So, so why don't I just talk a little bit about the data in my article. Uh, recall that we had 138 uh, opinions that we studied, that we surveyed, and recall that defendants only challenged price impact in 21 of those cases. And out of those 21, they lost 14. But some of the answers to your question can be found in these 14 uh, court rulings. For example, in my research found that defendants attempted on, on at least four occasions to demonstrate the lack of a price impact by showing that the residual return was not statistically significant. So in fact, defendants are attempting to do what you just talked about, uh, studying statistical significance. Here, as in our discussion on, of materiality, the defendant's method of proof was if the price didn't move, then it can be presumed to have no impact. The court disagreed. We document that in the, in the survey, but just to give you a couple of examples, in the Southern Court securities litigation, the court noted, although a non-statistically significant price decline without more may not demonstrate a price impact, neither is it necessary proof of the opposite. Another example is the uh, Akeda Healthcare Securities litigation. The court came to a similar conclusion. It said, the existence of non-statistically significant stock price declines does not prove the absence of a price impact. So our research indicates that the courts routinely say, 
lack of statistically significance is not enough to demonstrate a lack of price impact. So like in your example three, about the earnings you just talked about, a statement could be material, have a price impact, but not be statistically significant. I think you put it nicely. You said something that because it gets lost in the noise. That's right, Torben. You know, sometimes it's possible for a statement to have a price impact, but it simply just gets lost in the noise, right? So as I say in my paper, one of the things that you have to remember about event studies, it can only assess whether stock prices change based on what's observable in the actual world. Event studies really only allow you to examine the relation between changes in the actual world and changes in information in the actual world. Sometimes it gets lost in the noise. However, there are times where the event study is asking you to look at changes in prices in the actual world and changes in information in the actual world, and those two events don't line up necessarily at the same point in time. Example four in my paper gets at this issue. It gets at the issue of if you want to examine price impact of a fraudulent statement, do you examine it at the front end when the fraudulent statement is made or at the back end when the corrective disclosure occurs? Let's look at example four. So in example four, the market comes into the world, investors come into the world expecting that a company is going to earn 10 cents a share. And the disclosure from the company is, in fact, it did earn 10 cents a share. At the point in time that the fraud enters the market at the front end, market expects 10 cents and the firm reports 10 cents. There is no change in the actual information. There's a legal question as to whether there is a price impact associated with that fraud. Later on, the company announces, in reality, it only earned 9 cents a share. That's the corrective disclosure. At that point in time, there is a change in the total mix of information. The market had expected 10 cents. It now learned there's only 9 cents on the table. At that point in time, at the back end of the fraud, is a chance to assess price impact. Now, what happens in practice is if defense examines in a price maintenance case like this, the price impact at the beginning, at the front end of the fraud, defense may find that there's lack of statistical significance. But from economics, that's expected. There was no change in the total mix of information at that time. So the question then becomes, from a matter of economics, it makes sense to examine price impact when the information actually changes. So in terms of economics, it makes sense if we want to examine the price impact of this one penny earnings misstatement in example four, we would go to the time when the company revealed in a corrective disclosure that it only earned nine cents. At that time, we have what the event study is good at, a change in the actual world in actual information, looking at a change in the actual world in the change in price. If event studies could be useful in price impact maintenance claims, then that may make a difference at class cert. If defendants are allowed to challenge class certification and price impact in price maintenance claims by looking at the corrective disclosure, which is where economics predicts they should look, then that may have been an avenue that's afforded under Halliburton. So Torben, that's why I say uh, from an economic point of view, it makes sense that if we really want a rigorous investigation of price impact at class cert, sometimes we may have to look at the front end when the statement enters the market, and sometimes we may have to look at the corrective disclosure at the back end. Now, there's a tension there because when we look at the back end, that seems an awful lot to sound like loss causation. So what are courts doing with this? How are courts determining what to look at and where to look? What we found in our research is there's only two attempts by defendants to demonstrate a lack of price impact using corrective disclosures. And here, defendant faced your example four, the way you just described it. So just like your example, 
the plaintiffs in these two cases allege the price maintenance theory of inflation caused by the alleged omissions. And so, for example, if you look at the big locks securities litigation, the court said defendants' failure to show that there was no statistical significant price impact following the corrective disclosure in this case. Accordingly, defendants have failed to rebut the presumption of reliance. Uh, another example is the Best Buy Corp securities litigation. The court said defendants have not offered evidence to show that Best Buy's stock price did not decrease when the truth was revealed. Thus, defendants have not submitted evidence sufficient to rebut the presumption. So in our survey of these 138 cases, we found at least two instances where the court seems to say the defendant's failure to rebut the presumption of reliance because they did not examine the price impact associated with the corrective disclosure. One interpretation of these opinions could be or is that it, it is okay to examine corrective disclosures when assessing price impact for the purpose of class cert, as you're proposing. It appears that most courts agree with the reliable application of event studies when assessing impact. So maybe as we go forward, we'll see more of, of that challenge. So the other topic that we wanted to talk about today was confounding information. You know, what happens in the context of confounding information and why is that a problem for the courts? In loss causation, what's happening with confounding information is after we've stripped out the market and industry, that residual, it may pass the threshold. It may be statistically significant. For a long time, courts held plaintiffs to a strict bar to say, okay, but if that residual was is associated with a bunch of news, how are you going to determine it was the fraud news that caused the decline and not this other confounding news? In the event study in this, in this setting, this is not where it does a good job as it's applied in litigation. In academia, the event study eliminates confounding information because it looks at the effect of a single event on multiple firms. Whether one firm does good or bad for an independent reason washes out in the noise and the effect of the announcement survives in the literature. In litigation, these are single firm event studies. Firm disclosures are bundled up with a bunch of information and somewhere in there, the fraud is revealed. The question is, how are we gonna deal with confounding information? Let me put an example on the table and let's talk about what courts are doing with this in assessing price impact. So example six in my article describes a variant of example three, the affirmative misrepresentation that we looked at previously. Here, Example six, the market expects the firm to report a 10 cents earning. Instead, it falsely reports 11 cents. So on the day that the expected fr the fraud comes into the market, there is a change of information. It went from 10 cents expectation up to an 11 cents guidance by the firm. But here's the problem. On that day, the company also lowers guidance for the next year. So that positive influence of we over-reported earnings by a penny, gets washed out in the noise of, and we're lowering guidance going forward. In that story, the confounding information masks the price impact of the alleged fraud. The alleged fraud is expected to cause a price impact because you're reporting a different level of earnings going forward. We know that in reality, in many cases, firm disclosures contain multiple pieces of information so we know in reality, courts are going to have to grapple with this when thinking about price impact. It's been 10 years again since Halliburton. We've got a bunch of cases. So tell me, how are the courts dealing with confounding information when assessing price impact at class certification? A great topic because this always comes up in our secure class action cases. Confounding information seems to be where the, the action is uh, when you measure price impacts. 
what we found in our survey was that it all depends on whether defendants provide additional evidence. What I mean is that the courts, in their opinion, seems to indicate or suggest to the defense or the defendants that uh, you need to be more affirmative in your statements when you are trying to challenge class cert, particularly around confounding information. As you know, Drew, uh, we often just say that there's confounding information, so it's hard to disentangle what is the price impact. What the court seems to suggest and what we find in our survey is that defendants may try to demonstrate, for example, that the market is highly efficient in its response to confounding information, but is statistically unlikely to respond to the type of information at issue. What the courts are saying is uh, you got to present affirmative evidence, prove that the price impact that is observable in the real world is caused by the confounding information and not the issue that's being challenged. So some of the some of the things that the court has pointed out that we saw was that defendants might demonstrate that confounding information is the more likely cause of the entire price impact than the alleged information in the misstatement or the corrective disclosure. Again, the court reiterated that you might demonstrate as a defendant that although affirmative statistical evidence that another confounding factor caused the price decline. So really what they're saying is you need to come forward with some more affirmative statements. Our survey shows that Evaluations of market efficiency to establish the presumption of reliance should focus more specifically on whether the market has been demonstrating a response to the type of information at issue, as opposed to just responding to information. Our survey also showed that in order to statistically demonstrate a lack of price impact, defendant must present expert evidence that affirmatively demonstrate it is more likely than not that the market moves are attributable to other causes. So it goes back to really what I said earlier you got to put forward an affirmative statement. We, we kind of conclude our survey by saying that, or suggesting that, the empirical goalposts these opinions describe are obtainable through statistical and scientific-based studies as the basis for a predictive model that disaggregate returns expected from confounding information, accounting for the entirety of the particular return. So long story short here about confounding information, it seems that after Halliburton, if you want to challenge class cert, the court are saying to defendants, you can challenge it, but you got to be more affirmative in statement and introduce your own events. Yeah, I, I like I like that interpretation of it, of, of the findings. Effectively, we know at loss causation, the plaintiffs are held to a high standard in confounding information to be able to marshal additional evidence that the price actually moved because of the alleged fraud and the correct disclosure. Makes sense that the court on the front end of the case might require also that if defense is going to use the same argument to rule out price impact, the defense would also have to provide some form of statistical evidence or some form of economic analysis that would actually rule out the confounding information having an effect. I like that finding. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing. Join us for the next part of our discussion on Halliburton II and the role of event studies in assessing price impact. Our next episode will focus on the role of investor sentiment and third-party disclosures when addressing price impact.